0: Good afternoon. My name is Justin Logan. I'm a foreign policy analyst here at Cato, and it's my pleasure to uh, welcome you to our first event of the year. Uh, one administrative note I want to go ahead and get out there. We do have copies of uh, The National Interest available, which has not only a shorter uh, uh, version of the thesis that uh, Professors Mansfield and Snyder advance in their book, but also uh, a short piece by Robert Mary, who's one of our commentators, and a lot of other good things. So that's available gratis outside. Um, As are several of the books uh, that we'll be drawing on here today. Um, One of the things that we like to do here at Cato is ask hard questions about government policies. Is a policy constitutional? Does a government program achieve the goal that it's pursuing? Uh, Does a policy have negative unintended consequences? And the book we're here to discuss today asks very hard questions about a subject that is controversial for some and sacrosanct for others, democratization. Although the wave of democratization that has occurred over the past decades has had some meaningful successes, there can be problems with the process of democratization. And in the book, Edward Mansfield and Jack Snyder's Electing to Fight, Why Emerging Democracies Go to War, they build on their path-breaking 1995 article on international security. Uh, They survey the history of democratization and conclude that, alarmingly, uh, the incidence of interstate violence can greatly increase during incomplete, poorly sequenced democratization. And theirs is not simply a descriptive academic book. Uh, It has implications for policy practitioners as well. The findings lead them to point out that, quote, urging a democratic transition when the necessary institutions are extremely weak risks not only a violent outcome, but also an increased likelihood of a long detour into a pseudo-democratic form of nationalism. With events continuing to unfold in Iraq and the greater Middle East, and with some analysts pushing for democracy promotion to take even higher priority in the hierarchy of U.S. policy goals, the book's findings will have serious implications in the years to come. What I'd like to do is go ahead and introduce our authors who will speak, and then after they've finished, I'll introduce our commentators, and then we'll have a question and answer period following. Uh, the first speaker today is Jack Snyder, who's the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Relations in the Political Science Department and the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. His research focuses on international relations theory, post-Soviet politics, and nationalism. Snyder's books include From Voting to Violence, Democratization and Nationalist Conflict, which is available for sale outside, and Myths of Empire, Domestic Politics and International Ambition. His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, International Organization, International Security, and World Politics, among others. Snyder received his BA from Harvard University, his certificate from the Russian Institute at Columbia, and his PhD also from Columbia University. Second speaker today is Edward Mansfield, who is the Humrosen Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and the director of UPenn's Christopher H. Brown Center for International Politics. Dr. Mansfield's teaching and research focus on international security and international political economy, and he's the author of, among other books, Power, Trade, and War. His work has appeared in International Security, Foreign Affairs, International Organization, and International Studies Quarterly, among other publications. Uh, Dr. Mansfield received his BA, MA, and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. So, with that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to our first speaker, Jack Snyder.
1: Thanks so much, Justin, and thanks to you for coming. President Bush says that America is safest when democracy is on the march. And President Clinton said that since no two democracies have ever fought a war against each other, that in order to make the world more peaceful, we should promote transitions to democracy. Well, over the past year, we've seen plenty of elections in the Middle East. It's a big social science experiment that's been going on there. And the results are starting to come in. Most of them are pretty dismaying. The candidates who have been doing well in those elections are in favor of nuclear proliferation, in favor of pushing Israel into the sea, (laughs) denying the Holocaust. They often have represented ethnic and sectarian communities rather than a broader public interest. In the Palestinian elections, we're expecting the uh, Hamas terrorist group to do well. In Afghanistan, warlords and drug drug lords did well in the elections. Now, in Iraq, I wouldn't want to claim that the elections are the main part of the problem there. Nonetheless, I think the elections have been polarizing. Largely, this is because sectarian and ethnic networks uh, could more easily be used to form the basis of political parties in the social and governmental and institutional chaos of that post-conflict state. Much easier to form parties based on narrow religious, sectarian, and ethnic interests and long-standing social networks than to create secular networks from scratch, something that can only happen over time and in a well-developed institutional setting that allows cross-religious, cross-ethnic groups to form. So in light of these results of the Middle Eastern elections of the last year, let's step back and assess the overall strategy for forced pace uh, democratization. Now the research that uh, Professor Mansfield and I have been doing argues that it is true that if the world were populated by mature democratic countries it would be more peaceful. But the problem is getting from here to there. Our research finds that countries that are just starting to democratize with weak political systems are more likely to get into wars, both international wars and civil and ethnic wars, than are other kinds of states. So let's think about Uh, the list for the 1990s. In Yugoslavia, the war broke out about six months after elections were held all around uh, that country. Armenia and Azerbaijan held elections after the breakup of the Soviet Union that international observers deemed reasonably free and fair. Those elections in both cases were won by nationalist politicians. Shortly after the elections, the conflict between those two states intensified. In Burundi in 1993, the international community looked at the ethnic minority military dictatorship in that country and said, if you don't democratize, you get no more aid the Tutsi minority regime said, okay, we'll hold elections. Not surprisingly, the Hutu majority candidate won and tried to institute dramatic changes in the composition of the military, previously dominated entirely by the Tutsi. This led to fears and tensions on both sides, which quickly broke out into ethnic violence that subsequently killed a couple of hundred thousand people. In Indonesia, violence broke out literally the day after the East Timor independence referendum was passed. Between Ethiopia and Eritrea, a World War 1 style trench war broke out towards the end of the 19 19- 90s. Ethiopia, a democratizing country. Eritrea, a country that had just adopted a democratic constitution but had not yet had a chance to implement it. Russia's war in Chechnya, especially the Second Chechen War, was embroiled in Putin's campaign for the presidency of Russia, thinking that a quick apparent victory in Chechnya would give him a boost in the polls and allow him to succeed Yeltsin as president and in fact it worked just that way. Uh, The fact that the outcome of the war was less successful than he had hoped was really something that became apparent only after the elections. India and Pakistan fought the Kargil War, two elected governments brandishing nuclear weapons. Uh, In Pakistan, the war uh, began shortly after some constitutional changes that at least on paper actually made the country more democratic by increasing the authority of the prime minister vis-a-vis the military. So that was the track record of the 1990s. This association between the beginning stages of transitions to democracy in countries with weak institutions, however, is not a new thing in the post-Cold War era. It goes back to the French Revolution. Ed Mansfield and I have uh, done a study that looks at the track record of the 19th and 20th centuries uh, I'm gonna finish in a minute and hand the podium over to Ed to tell you a little bit more about our research results uh, on those historical databases but before I do let me just um, say a little bit about why it is that newly democratizing countries in settings where political institutions are weak, are prone to international and civil wars. Uh, We argue that this situation creates both a motive and an opportunity for elites to promote nationalism. Now, this uh, in part can be a matter of old elites, elites left over from an authoritarian regime who see that in the democratizing setting they need to reach out to some kind of mass constituency in order to retain the legitimacy that they need to stay in power. So, for example, Slobodan Milosevic in Yugoslavia in the 1980s knows that communism is no longer got a wash. If he wants to stay in power, He's got to switch to a more popular ideology and he chooses Serb ethnic nationalism, which has the appeal of being a political doctrine that says the government should rule in the name of the people, although not necessarily under strict democratic procedural controls of accountability to the people. So sometimes the playing of the nationalist card comes top-down from the old elites that are gambling for resurrection. Sometimes, however, it comes from rising groups, including ethnic groups, that uh, may have gotten a bad deal under the previous authoritarian regime and are saying, uh, we need to organize ourselves to get some power to either take over the state or secede and get a state of Uh, our own. When um, politics uh, becomes more open in the early phases of democratization, people tend to organize politically around the social ties and networks that are already there. Often in traditional societies, at the early phases of a transition, these are ethnic ties, sometimes religious ties, and that's, for example, what's been happening in Iraq. Uh, The sooner the elections take place, after a conflict or after the authoritarian regime collapses, the weaker the political institutions of the state and consequently the more likely it will be that the political groups that form will be based on uh, the cultural patterns of the traditional society ethnic or religious. Now uh, you're probably thinking uh, Wait a second, what about all the peaceful cases of transition to democracy that have been happening over the last 20 years? In South America, in Northeastern Europe, Taiwan, South Korea, even South Africa, things have been going better there than one might have expected. Well, these success cases of transition to democracy are mainly ones that are relatively well off in terms of per capita income where literacy is relatively high, where citizen skills to participate in democracy are relatively advanced, and where in many cases there was an institutional legacy from past attempts at democracy or where there were fairly strong state institutions left over from the authoritarian regime that the the emerging democracy could put to democratic purposes as happened in South Africa. So as we look around the Middle East one of the reasons why elections have not been going very well there over the last year is that none of these favorable conditions exist in most of the cases There are countries with low uh, GNP per capita where literacy rates are not good uh, they're some of them oil states and Oil economies are notoriously hard to mix with democracy. They're multi-ethnic states, and they're states where who is the nation that should exercise national self-determination is an unsettled question. So what's our prescription for dealing with the problem of states that lack the preconditions for successful, peaceful transition to democracy? Uh, We say, get the sequence right. If your job is democracy promotion, start by working on helping countries build effective state institutions. Institutions of the state that follow some rules that are not mired in corruption. Institutions of the state that create a legal system in which uh, citizens can get a fair and equitable hearing, Uh, then after there's some initial progress in creating the beginnings of a rule of law state then move more towards the creation of institutions needed for mass political participation, the professionalization of journalism, the strengthening of political parties, and then wind up the process with free and fair, no holds barred elections. Don't start the process with the elections, but hold the elections after the institutional basis for success has been put in place. Uh, This is not easy to accomplish. Probably in the Q&A, we'll talk about how to accomplish that. But since my time is out, uh, I'm going to hand off now to Professor Mansfield. Thank you.
2: Um. So what I'd like to talk very briefly about are some of the tests that we conducted of this argument that incomplete democratization in the face of weak political institutions can be a dangerous process that uh, precipitates the onset of war. Um, To test this argument quantitatively, and uh, Professor Snyder described some of the uh, case study-based tests that we conducted, and the book includes both narrative case studies, as well as a series of quantitative tests. We need measures of democratization, we need measures of the strength of domestic institutions since, as he pointed out, this uh, helps to regulate the process of democratization and influences whether it's a a dangerous process or not, in our view, and then of war. So let uh, let me discuss a little bit the measures that we came up with and then turn to the results and, and then finally conclude. Now throughout this book and the larger project we distinguish two phases of democratization. First the transition from autocracy toward a partially democratic regime and then the shift to a fully institutionalized democracy. We argue that hostilities are more likely to break out during the first phase when old elites threatened by the transition may still be powerful and the institutions needed to regulate the process are still quite weak. Consistent with a a great deal of existing research, we measure regime type and the change in regime using what's referred to as the polity database that was created by Ted Robert Gurr and his colleagues at the University of Maryland. What's central to these measures are factors such as the competitiveness of the process through which a country's chief executive is elected, the openness of this process, the extent to which there are institutional constraints on a chief executive's decision-making authority, the competitiveness of political participation within a country, and the degree to which binding rules govern political participation within it. So these factors are aggregated to create a summary measure of regime type, which in our view does a pretty good job of capturing the factors that we think are at the root of our argument. But in addition to this index, we're also interested in isolating some of the factors that make it up, and in particular, the competitiveness of political participation, the openness of executive recruitment, and the extent of the constraints on the chief executive. So we measure these factors separately. Throughout these tests, we are uh, examining all states during the 19th and 20th centuries. And we measure democratization in a variety of ways, but for most of what we're interested in doing, we measure it over windows ranging from one to 10 years with most of our tests focusing on five-year windows. And so what we do is we look at the first year of each of these windows and see what the regime type of each state is and then look at what the regime type is five years later. If there's a transition that's occurred, we identify it as such and for those countries that make a transition from an autocratic regime to a regime that's semi-democratic, that's mixed in some sense, has autocratic and democratic characteristics. These are the regimes that we think are most dangerous and this is a process that we refer to as incomplete democratization. For countries that make shifts that wind up in fully formed democracies this we refer to as complete democratization and we're somewhat less worried about its consequences. We also create some uh, corresponding measures of autocratization since we want to make sure that what we're observing isn't just some general tendency for regime change in general to precipitate hostilities, but rather some specific features of democratization. We also uh, use a measure that Gurr and his colleagues have constructed of the centralization and coherence of domestic institutions. Since, as I mentioned before, our argument is that these incomplete democratic transitions are especially pernicious in countries that don't have the institutional infrastructure to manage the process. And then we analyze the interaction between this measure of institutions and our measures of democratization and also autocratization. Our data on war come from what's referred to as the correlates of war project which is the standard database and we're interested here in all external wars that is both wars between states as well as wars by a nation-state against an extra systemic actor an imperial or a colonial war obviously things that occurred most frequently during the 19th as opposed to the 20th century but nonetheless from a historical standpoint wars that are of considerable importance from our standpoint. We control for a variety of factors in conducting these tests and I won't bore you with a long list of them although I'm happy to discuss them at greater length later. But what's key is that our results uh, both statistical and otherwise provide very strong and consistent evidence that incomplete transitions that is these transitions from an autocracy that gets stuck in these mixed democratic autocratic states promote the outbreak of war when a state's institutions are weak and fragmented. And this is the case regardless of which measure of regime type and consequently regime change we analyze. If we analyze a situation in which the institutional strength of a country is relatively degraded, an incomplete democratic transition yields between a fourfold and a 15-fold increase in the likelihood of war compared to regimes that don't change, depending on which measure of regime type we focus on. Furthermore, an incomplete democratic transition is between 50% and 200% more likely to precipitate war than any other type of regime change that we analyze. So what's going on is not just that regime change in general is dangerous. It's this particular type of regime change. These results are robust to a wide variety of changes to the sample of countries being analyzed, the estimation techniques and modeling strategies that we use, the inclusion of additional independent variables in the models, and the types of wars that are analyzed. Equally, our results refute the view that transitional democracies are simply inviting targets of attack due to their temporary weakness. In fact, if anything, they tend to be the initiators of war. We also exclude the possibility that the effect of democratization on war actually reflects the effect of war on democratization. In fact, our findings indicate that war has very little bearing on either the occurrence of democratic transitions or whether those transitions that do occur yield coherent democratic institutions. Finally, our results uh, are consistent not only when we look at the effects of what countries do, but also what happens when we analyze sets of countries, pairs of countries. And these results hold up even after accounting for the static regime characteristics emphasized in research on the democratic peace, various aspects of power relations, stressed in realist and other theories of international relations, geopolitical factors, uh, and domestic factors of other sorts. So, in conclusion, the Bush administration has argued that promoting democracy throughout the world will enhance America's security because tyranny breeds violence and democracies coexist in peace. But recent experience in Iraq and elsewhere shows that the early stages of transitions to electoral politics have often been rife with violence. These episodes aren't just a speed bump on the road to the democratic peace. Instead, they reflect a fundamental problem with strategies of forced-paced democratization in countries that lack the political institutions to support the process. It's true that mature, stable democracies don't fight each other and rarely become embroiled in civil and ethnic warfare. But countries that are just starting down the path toward democracy are at a high risk for war, especially if they're ill-prepared for the journey. Pushing countries too soon into competitive electoral politics not only risks stoking war sectarianism and terrorism but it also makes the future consolidation of democracy more difficult pressure to democracy applied under the wrong conditions is likely to be counterproductive and dangerous thank you very much
0: all right thank you both jack and ed and i'll go ahead and introduce our commenters now the first commenter is Thomas Carruthers, who is Senior Associate and Director of the Democracy and Rule of Law Project at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's a leading authority on democracy promotion and democratization worldwide, and as well as an expert on U.S. foreign policy generally. His books include Aiding Democracy Abroad, The Learning Curve, and his forthcoming book Promoting the Rule of Law Abroad in Search of Knowledge, for which we have flyers available outside. Sir Carothers holds an A.B. from Harvard College, a Master of Science from the London School of Economics, and a J.D. from Harvard Law School. The second commenter is Robert W. Mary, president and publisher of Congressional Quarterly. In addition to his leadership at CQ, Mary is an astute observer of the international scene. He served in the U.S. Army as a language-qualified counterespionage agent in West Germany, After his military service, Mary began a career in political journalism, including stints with the Denver Post, the Wall Street Journal, and now at CQ. His most recent book is on American foreign policy in the post-Cold War era, titled Sands of Empire, Missionary Zeal, American Foreign Policy, and the Hazards of Global Ambition. Mary holds a B.A. in editorial journalism from the University of Washington and a master's degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. So our first commenter now is Thomas Carruthers.
3: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here at Cato today as part of this, uh, I think, useful discussion about this important book. As I think everybody here knows, in the last several years, the Washington policy community is asking a lot of democracy. Uh, Democracy is going to bring peace in the world. Democracy is going to end terrorism. Democracy is going to promote economic development. And a lot of, I would say, overstated and probably overenthusiastic Statements have been made uh, from the top down in the Washington policy community about the power of democracy to solve the world's ills. As a response to that, uh, a lively debate is emerging about each of these three central propositions. People are beginning to question whether, as uh, President Bush and others have said, does democracy really reduce the chance of terrorism? People are beginning to question, or people have been debating for a long time, but I'd say more, more intensively now, is democracy really associated with economic development or not? And thanks in part to this book, uh, people are also starting to debate more seriously to what extent does democracy really bring peace, and should we count on democratization as a method of peace building in the world? So this book is part of a very important debate about the role of democracy in American foreign policy that's occurring. One of the things that troubles me about this debate as I've watched it unfold is that there's a tendency on the part of what I would call the enthusiasts to overstate their positions and to put forward what sound like sort of statements of elixir that democracy is a magic elixir which is going to take care of these things. And then there's a mirror image response on the part of some people uh, and I'm not including uh, professors Snyder and Mansfield in that camp to strike back and say, no, in fact, democracy is dangerous or bad in a number of different ways. Uh, I'm concerned about overstatement in this debate because what we end up with are sort of caricatures on each side and we lose the valuable middle. I think this book represents an important development in developing that valuable middle, although I'm a little concerned about whether or not it's lapsing at times because of the stridency of some of what it's pushing against, I feel there are times when it's pushing a little bit too hard to perhaps overstate some of its conclusions and reach sort of simplified policy conclusions that I think may overstate its case. So though I, I very much agree with the spirit of the book, which is to take a very hard look at the realities of democratization in different parts of the world and the fact that they're often associated with conflict, I do have a couple of concerns, and in my short time here, I'm going to set out two of those. The basic thrust of the book and, and what we heard in the presentations today is that moving towards mass political contestation before a country really has the institutional requisites of consolidated democracy is dangerous, both for the possibility of civil war and interstate war. When political institutions are weak is the phrase that's often used in the book and in in the talks that we heard today, bad things can happen. Now when I look at the last 25 years or so in the world and say, okay, there's been a lot of democratization that's been attempted and some achieved in the last 25 years, what really is the picture? I see a very clear division between two, sort of you can draw the world into two halves, and, and Jack referred to it here, on the one hand you have some attempts at democratization associated with conflict in several different places, above all the former Soviet Union, former Yugoslavia, parts of Africa. On the other hand, you have a lot of democratization in other parts of the world, Latin America, Central and Eastern Europe, north of the Balkans, and significant parts of East Asia and Southeast Asia, where you have almost no conflict almost no interstate, essentially no interstate conflict with a couple of minor exceptions and surprisingly little civil conflict as well. And so for me, <clears throat> I look at those two, that division, and I say, what's going on here? Why am I seeing conflict over here and not conflict over here? And if I take the statement, well, maybe it's where political institutions are weak, you tend to get more conflict, and where they're stronger, you don't. I think that's an overly broad characterization of what's happened. Let me explain what I mean. I think the reason that you have so much conflict associated with political change and democratization in the former Soviet Union and former Yugoslavia is basically the breakup of empire. You have empires which contained within them incipient and after the breakup new nation states or new republics and that proved to be a very conflictual process. Establishing Uh, all of the new post-Soviet states and the uh, post-Yugoslav states proved to be very conflictual because there was a lot of territory to fight over. Uh, And you had political entities that had very weak states in the sense of not ever having a solid territorial basis, and they fought over it. In Africa, Rwanda, Burundi, some of the other cases that were mentioned, Ethiopia and Eritrea, which of course had previously been a country and split apart, you have post-colonial states that had never really managed to solve the basic compact of the nation-state between conflicting ethnic groups. And so when authoritarianism collapsed, you had the emergence of powerful ethnic surges in some places, or tribal, as in uh, Rwanda and Burundi, threatening to break apart the state or leading to, to massive violence within those societies. So for me, the essential problem is that democracy, democratization is very dangerous and difficult when you have an entity which is not a coherent state or is trying to become one for the first time. But the problem is not when you undertake democratization in a place with, quote, weak political institutions. You want to find weak political institutions, go to Latin America. Political institutions are painfully weak in many Latin American countries. Go visit a Nicaraguan ministry if you want to see a weak political institution. Yet, in Latin America, despite a historic wave of democratization in Latin America, (coughs) almost no conflict. And so I think saying weak political institutions tend to cause conflict is overgeneralizing for what really is a problem of state coherency. And yes, it is very hard when you have the breakup of empire to both form a country of Armenia or Azerbaijan at the same time you're trying to democratize it. And that can lead to the appeals of nationalism and other things that can lead to the conflict. But I have a feeling uh, that there's going to be a lot of conflict in the breakup of empire no matter what's happening politically in those new states because there's a lot of territory to fight over that really hasn't been settled. So I'm concerned about this statement that weak political institutions are really the key danger leading to both interstate and and within-state conflict. And I feel that we really have a, a more limited problem that we should focus on. And I feel that when you look at certain cases, I felt you were straining in some cases to make your case. For example, in the book, they feature the case of Argentina in 1981 and 1982 in the Falklands War. When I think about Argentina and the Falklands War, I think some pretty nasty military generals with a sort of sense of fading popularity and desperation due to the economic situation and a lack of legitimacy launched a pretty nasty war to try to build up their image. That comes under the cases of democracy is dangerous, and I, I must admit I had to scratch my head and say, Now how does that make democracy dangerous? Wasn't that military generals? And, you, and I, So I read carefully what you wrote there, and I went back and read some things about Argentina in 1981, and you say, well, you know, it was the late military dictatorship and they were trying to liberalize, so it's a liberalizing authoritarian regime that's dangerous. I feel like, isn't it just that you had some nasty military generals who launched a war? And ever since Argentina became democratic, they haven't done that kind of thing, and they've talked to the British, and they've tried to work this out. So I was a little puzzled that the generals in Argentina, the war that they launch ends up that see this shows that democracy is dangerous. <clears throat> I was similarly puzzled when I looked at the conflict in Peru and Ecuador, which I think you make a bit more of perhaps than than other people would in your sort of looking for other cases of interstate war. that the least democratic regime in South America in the 1990s was Fujimori, who was involved in that conflict. Yet again, that's evidence that democracy is dangerous. Again, I had to scratch my head and say, wait a minute, Fujimori was the one involved, all the least democratic leader in South America in the 1990s, yet democracy is to blame? So I started going through your cases, and I, I feel you were straining hard to show that, well. You know, it's bad when you have a populist authoritarian government looking for popularity. Why is democracy getting the blame for that? So I felt not only were you overgeneralizing about when political institutions are weak, but I felt you were going through your cases, and to me there was a feeling of straining hard to add evidence uh, to what you were, to your general thesis. My second comment is about the idea of a preferable sequence of transition. The idea being, as was explained, first you have institutional development, especially rule of law, and then mass participation. It's a very appealing idea, and I think those of us who work on democracy promotion would probably love to see that happen. It doesn't happen in a lot of places. Why not? One main reason which you don't refer to is the fact in the last 20 to 25 years, international legitimacy is now, and domestic legitimacy, is gained by regimes and governments by having elections. And people want elections, and it isn't the international community telling them you ought to have an election. When Abacha died in Nigeria, the next morning, Nigerians woke up and said, we want elections. When Suharto was chased out of power, Indonesians said, we want elections. Uh, It was not the international community coming and saying, you have to have elections now. They wanted a regime that was legitimate, and the way you get legitimacy is through elections, like it or not. In terms of how we democratizers might think they ought to proceed, in Iraq, we tried to say, don't have elections. They said, we want elections, and we're not kidding. Uh, and so the international community really isn't in a position to say, hold off on elections for a generation or two while you build up the rule of law. People aren't going to do that. Um, <clears throat> secondly, you give the implication that it's really the international community that's in control and sort of, as you say, fast-paced. The, the implication is there's a coach running alongside democratization trying to make them go faster. Um, of course, one can point to Bosnia as a case where the international community did push elections. It's a very exceptional case. Rarely does the international community have that much impact on a country, and rarely does it have the imperative to have elections that it did then. In many cases, I can tell you, democracy promoters are going into countries and saying, slow down, take it easy, don't rush into elections. Um, we were certainly doing that in Iraq. Carnegie wrote a number of things saying, do not rush to elections in Iraq. This is not the way to solve the basic conflict that's going on among the different sectarian groups there. And so. you're you're overemphasizing the role of the international community. Third, in many cases, a country gets to a point where it doesn't have the rule of law, it has a dysfunctional authoritarian government, say Egypt, which is constantly violating the rule of law, and and you could say, well, don't move to mass participation, just work on the rule of law. Well, Egypt has been working on the rule of law for a long time. The United States has the largest single rule of law promotion program in Egypt anywhere in the world. It's been a total failure, because there's no alternation of power, no real political space, no accountability of the government, and in those situations, the lack of democracy prevents progress on the rule of law. And I happen to have here an interesting book on promoting the rule of law, which I've just published, um, (laughs) which I recommend to people. Not just forthcoming, it's here. And what we find is that you really need to have, quote, the political will to have improvement on the rule of law, and that comes from the accountability and the push from below. It's an interesting book I recommend to you by uh, Professor Chavez in Argentina looking at the different provinces in Argentina and saying those that have made progress on anti-corruption and the rule of law are those that are the most democratic and have alternation of power. Alternation of power is the key to solving the problem of rule of law in many countries. And it's when you're blocked and you don't have that that you have the corrupt authoritarians. And so dreaming that these authoritarians are going to happen upon a technocratic generation-long solution towards the rule of law, the citizens are going to be patient enough and put it off their aspirations for a generation, I don't see where that's going to happen other than maybe Singapore where they're very, very wealthy and they're willing to put up with that. That's not going to happen in Egypt. And the longer you wait, uh, the worse that election you're afraid of is going to be in Egypt because part of the reason it's so scary now is because they haven't done anything on opening up the political space for 20 years, and there's a tremendous amount of accumulated pressure. Tell them to wait another 20 years, then you're really not going to like what's going to happen when they eventually do have an election. Thanks very much.
4: Uh, Well, in the interest of time and uh, hitting my allotted time, I'm going to break my comments down into several discrete uh, points. Number one, I I commend the professors for putting forth a really provocative and I think very timely um, thesis uh, to further the discussion on democratic peace. Uh, and, And I embrace their critique, incidentally, of democratization as a policy prescription uh, for uh, stability and peace around the world. Number two, my own bona fides. I, I have to say, I am not a political scientist, so I have no background in the kind of quantitative methodologies employed in this book. And I'm just an old gumshoe reporter, political reporter, who became a publisher, and uh, therefore I don't consider myself qualified to critique those methodologies. Having said that, however, I will say that I find myself a little skeptical of, of the uh, causality that uh, emerges in some of the examples that are put forth uh, in the book. And by way of illustration, I'd like to discuss two specific uh, examples. Uh, one is the Balkans, particularly uh, Serbia in the immediate uh, post-Ottoman period, and secondly, uh, the Mexican War, the American-Mexican War of the 1840s. Regarding uh, the effort of the Serbs to formulate some kind of a a governmental structure uh, upon the departure of the Ottomans in the 19th century, the authors write on page 206, the nationalism that fueled these wars was not simply, as has been said, a reflection of primordial feelings of ethnic rivalry. In fact, Serbian nationalism emerged through the process of state building and democratization in the 19th century on the next page they write the first glimmerings of truly national goals and consciousness came only with these efforts to build a modern serbian state in the eighteen thirties i really uh... disagree with this um, almost totally uh... and to me it raises some interesting questions worth uh... discussion uh... regarding uh... the underlying uh... thesis i believe that uh the Serbian ethnic nationalism or certainly the Serbian ethnic consciousness or identity was the inevitable consequence of 500 years of Ottoman overlordship in that region. During which time, this Serbian identity was maintained and kept alive through two institutions. One was the church and its vast network of ancient monasteries that dotted that region, particularly in Kosovo. Robert D. Kaplan, in his famous book, Balkan ghosts called them safe boxes of art and magic. And the other was the sinews of poetic myth and legend that developed during that period, throughout that entire period, uh, around the tragic story, tragic for the Serbs, of uh, the uh, lost uh, battle at uh, Kosovo Polje, uh, the field of blackbirds in 1389. And these exercised a very powerful tug and pull on the Serbian consciousness throughout that dark Ottoman period. So I I would say that to suggest that there was no Serbian nationalism or Serbian consciousness or identity that manifested itself in nationalism, in the age of nationalism after all, um, prior to those efforts to forge a viable state in the 19th century is not correct history. I know that there are many ostensibly serious uh, uh, historians who say that. Uh, but I don't think it holds up to scrutiny. And what, what I see here is a, a potential flaw is manifest perhaps in another passage that I encountered on page 22 in which the authors relate essential thesis of the work which they've described here and um, which I find very provocative and interesting. But they say that in emerging democracies, there's a tendency for leaders to grab the leverage of nationalist politics, nationalist um, um, uh, rhetoric, in order to shore up their regimes and to consolidate power. And in so doing, they create a kind of a byproduct, which this kernel, this uh, force of nationalism now leads to uh, heightened risks of war and, and uh, cross-border uh, um, aggressiveness. And they write, relating certain specific examples that they've discussed, as predicted, ethnic nationalist themes, Serb, Turk, Thai, and Iraqi Arab, were particularly salient in states with the weakest political institutions. Now, as I say, I'm not a political scientist, but I find myself wondering whether this isn't a kind of distilled example of an age-old question of public policy research, which is, which comes first? It strikes me as a valid question. Did nationalism emerge as a powerful governmental weapon because the political institutions were weak? or? is it possible that the political institutions were weak because nationalism as a powerful force in the polity got in the way of efforts to strengthen those institutions. The authors seem to be saying that almost universally it's the former. I would suggest that at times it's uh, the latter. In any case with regard to uh, Serbia in the 19th century, I believe that this nationalism was a fundamental fact of life, that channeled, guided, and shaped all of those efforts during that time to forge governmental institutions. In fact, I argue in my latest book that our own government's inability or unwillingness to take into account the lingering significance of uh, those nationalist sentiments contributed to what I believe was a failed policy in that region. On the Mexican War, the professors take a little bit different tack. They're, in my view, properly circumspect in suggesting that probably any American regime, democratizing or not, would have wanted those territories, namely Texas and California, and given the relative power positions of the United States and Mexico, would likely have simply grabbed those territories, again, irrespective of the level of democratization. But again, they they tilt uh, and lean towards an interpretation that is um, reminiscent of what I just described. They cite one, quote, interpretation that the Polk administration, quote, used expansionist themes to revive the connection between the Democratic Party and its Jacksonian popular base, which had been badly damaged by the economic recession during Martin Van Buren's term as president. What I get here is a suggestion, and it's manifest in other historical examples that they use, that these leaders sort of cynically manipulated these themes in order to consolidate their power internally and then, in so doing, created that byproduct I mentioned which is um, a tendency to push, to have these nationalist sentiments well up to such an extent that they push uh, the polity towards uh, um, cross-border aggression. I'm I'm writing a book for Simon Schuster right now on uh, the politics of American expansionism uh, in the 1840s. Uh, And I believe that in the terms of Polk's war, it's very clear that these expansionist and nationalist themes were integral to the Jacksonian sensibility from the very beginning, from the beginning of Jackson and that Jackson himself was the chief promoter of both um, uh, both publicly and privately to Polk as Polk was emerging as the likely next president. So in terms of history, leaving aside any quantitative theorems, I believe that Polk turned to those themes because number one they were intrinsic to his basic fundamental outlook on politics and the country. And number two, because he sensed correctly, unlike a lot of people that are viewed even today as great politicians of that era, that there was welling up within the country a powerful wave of sentiment that was consonant with his own and Jackson's own views about uh, American expansionism and the vision of a nation that stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. and. Uh, as I note, many great politicians of the time, including Clay, Calhoun, and Webster, and Martin Van Buren, we could throw in, for good measure, all missed this. Clay and Van Buren, by the way, uh, essentially uh, scotched their, effort, their uh, possibility of becoming president in 1844 because they opposed the annexation of Texas. So they didn't understand what was going on. Polk did. And so, uh, to me, it's... Um, the authors are wise to suggest that this majority coalition likely would have emerged irrespective of the status of uh, the uh, uh, nation in terms of democratization. But, and, I, and I think that you might be able to apply some of that to some other examples as well. I, just in reading the book, I came across the example of Prussia, or what they call Prussia slash Germany, the German principalities in the Bismarckian period. And I found myself wondering, well now if it's true or likely or possible that this majority coalition would have emerged in America which would have led to war in any case, irrespective of democratization, why wouldn't it be equally true with regard to Germany the Prussia and the German principalities uh in the eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies, which after all was the age of nationalism? Uh wouldn't they would they not have found a way to unite irrespective of where they were in terms of this continuum of, nas- of, of democratization, and would they likely have gone to war if that would have furthered that aim? I believe that if it's true of America and Mexico in the 1840s, it probably is equally true of Germany and uh, the German principalities and uh, Prussia in the 1860s uh, and 1870s. So I guess I don't quite buy the causality, and I had the same problem with our American policy During the 1990s, with regard to the Balkans, and it was encapsulated uh, in a uh, sentence from the book of our last uh, uh, ambassador to Yugoslavia, the late Warren Zimmerman, who wrote that what he was grappling with there was, quote, violence provoking nationalism from the top down. I don't think that's normally how politics works, and I think that uh, there's too much of that uh, sentiment. in uh, uh, this uh, thesis. Having said that, I'll just reiterate that I uh, think it's a, a tremendous contribution to the discussion. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm very pleased to be part of this particular uh, forum. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you very much, both Tom and Bob. And I think it would be only fair to give uh, the authors five or so minutes to respond to some of the critiques that have been made. So okay. Jack, if you want
5: to.
1: Uh, Well, these are terrific points made by people who are very smart and expert, and so uh, I appreciate their contribution to the debate. Uh, Let me just touch on um, a few points here. First of all, um, what role does our argument about weak institutions in transitional states play in some overall theory of why wars happen or why democracies consolidate. Uh, We are not trying to make an argument that we have a single factor explanation for all of this. Uh, We recognize that war happens for many reasons and that countries can succeed or fail to consolidate democracy. For uh, a number of reasons, some of which I ticked off in my presentation. Is the country wealthy or the people literate? Uh, and, uh, you know, do they have the oil curse and so forth? So we're only uh, saying that our factor is an important factor among other ones, uh, including things like the breakup of empire. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the case studies that have been discussed. First of all, let me explain how we picked the case studies that we did narrative discussions about in uh, the book. We did not just go and look for the case studies that fit our argument to a T. What we did was we based our narrative case study selection on the statistical results. We wanted to look at each and every case where our database Showed that there was a country that had made a transition to democracy and where a war had ensued within a five or ten year period to check and see whether the war happened for reasons that seemed plausibly consistent with our argument, with our causal argument. And we found a small number of cases where the war happened for completely extraneous reasons and we said that those count against our argument. We found a lot of cases where the war happened for exactly the reasons that we said. And then we uh, found a few cases that were in the gray area where we argued, well, you might say that our argument has something to contribute to explaining what uh, went on. And some of the cases that the discussions uh, discussions have identified have been, you know, these gray area cases, but just let me explain the reasoning on some of them. Uh, Argentina and the Falkland uh, Wars, uh, our our database identified this as a case of a country that was beginning a transition from autocracy to a mixed regime, had not yet held elections, but had allowed um, the free formation of Uh, a multiple competing party system had freed the press and was moving towards elections. Now in almost all of our cases, there are cases where the elections had already happened, but in this case it was uh, not such a case. It was a case where the military junta wanted to have a successful war that would position them either to win the elections when they occurred or maybe to uh, get so much acclaim from the population that they wouldn't even have to have the election. But in any case, they were using nationalism in a period of incipient democratization, gambling for resurrection. Uh, Peru and Ecuador, I- I'm gonna stick by this case, uh, despite the, the point about Fujimori. Uh, Peru and Ecuador have had four wars uh, over the last two centuries, every war happened shortly after Peru made a transition from autocracy to partial democracy. The clearest break point is 1980. In the 60s and 70s, both Peru and Ecuador were autocracies and their border was completely placid. Both of them made transitions to democracy in 1980 and that started a series of border skirmishes. That happened immediately upon the heels of democratization and that ended in this uh, war in 1995. Um, The Balkans case. Before about the 1830s, the Serbs had an identity as Orthodox Christians, which was available for the Serbian nationalist state-building dynasties to use as raw materials out of which to create Serbian nationalism. So I think our, our dispute on that may be less than meets the eye. Uh, On the Mexican War, again, this was a case that we actually were surprised to see in our database. Once it was there, we were obligated to write a page and a half case study about it. Anatole Levin, who's been writing on Jacksonianism as the crucible for American militant nationalism, told me yesterday that he particularly liked what we said about the Mexican War. Um, I myself am more ambivalent about the case. Okay, so uh, finally, just let me wrap up with uh, sequencing. Uh, Everything that Tom Carruthers said about sequencing is uh, correct. Um, There is the problem that people often want to have elections even though their countries lack the preconditions for it. We're just saying, well, if the elections happen, don't expect them to go well, and in particular, don't base American foreign policy on the idea that they probably will go well. If you have a choice of whether to push a country towards premature elections in conditions um, where institutions are not prepared for it, if you have a choice like the international donors did in Burundi in 1993, think twice, think three times before you push for uh, elections. Uh, In the future, how hard should we be pushing the Egypts and the Chinas to have early elections? Ed and I are saying uh, be very careful about this. Uh, Finally, the catch-22 point. You need democratization to put pressure on governments to do rule of law reforms that are effective. Yes, there is this catch-22. On the other hand, Some countries have found that they face incentives to move ahead with rule of law. Sometimes it's just um, the authoritarian government wants to have a more coherent, well-functioning, efficient state. so that the the profits of autocracy won't be frittered away in small-scale penny-ante corruption, but will amass state power. So uh, Malaysia has had uh, the development of... Uh, an administratively efficient state that has moved ahead faster than progress on free and open democratic contestation. It looks like China is going to follow that same sequence and if so, we think that's the right thing to do there. Uh, Sometimes external inducements may be helpful on the margin to give rule of law incentives the way uh, the European Union uh, includes that in part of its EU enlargement incentive package but sometimes internal ruling coalitions in authoritarian or semi-authoritarian states have groups in society um, business groups for example that uh, don't want to have arbitrary state power uh, because it threatens their property rights and their personal security. And they create internal pressure on the regime to have a limited rule of law, even if they, these groups are not necessarily keen on immediate democratization. So uh, although I agree with what Tom Carruthers uh, says about all these dilemmas of sequencing. Um, nonetheless, we're just pointing out that when you have a choice, try to get the sequence right.
0: All right, thank you, Jack. We've got probably about twenty minutes for question and answers, so I'll make the obligatory requests to number one, please wait for the microphone which will come around with an intern. Uh, Number two, please identify yourself and any institutional affiliation you may have. And number three, please keep your question as uh, punchy and short as possible so that we can get as many as possible. So at this point if there are any questions, right here on the front, the green shirt.
5: David Eisenberg, British American Security Information Council. This question is to Professors Mansfield and Snyder. You write on page two of your book the following states risk nationalist violence when they attempt to transition to democracy without institutions of public accountability quote unquote. My question is simply with respect uh, to a country which is in everybody's mind these days, i.e. Iraq, how big of a danger is this?
2: Well. It's a big danger, I think. Um, you know, these institutions are, at this point, still relatively poorly formed, um, and obviously the, the challenge that faces the United States and the rest of the international community is helping the Iraqis to put these in place. And um, I think, I think the short answer is that unless we do a good job of that, The specter for violence in Iraq looms very
0: large. Okay. Next question, right there in the back, Leona Dar.
5: Right
6: there. Leona, Leona Dar at Cato. It seems to me when I study wars in the modern era, the main cause seems to be nationalism. And my question is. Can you explain to me what is in democracy that modifies, reduces mitigates nationalism i don 't see the, you know the causality here, and as some people mentioned, the breakup of empires and so on it's really nationalism the main cause you can really make a distinction between liberal nationalism and organic nationalism for, for example, but democracy, if anything, seems to me a cause of you no know, accelerating
1: process of nationalism. Uh, Historically, since the French Revolution, movements towards democracy have generally been associated with uh, the rise of nationalism. Um, You know, most people define nationalism as the doctrine that uh, a people deserves to rule itself in its own state, and it tends to go along with the idea that the people, rather than the king, are the holders of sovereignty. So uh, democratization and nationalism are uh, very closely connected concepts, and they're closely connected in history. Uh, However, we would distinguish between uh, the kind of uh, Reckless nationalist mythmaking that runs rampant in uh, transitional, democratizing countries, incomplete democratizers, where uh, the free marketplace of ideas is not well formed, where journalism is not professionalized, where publics are not sophisticated in sorting out uh, myths from better founded arguments, and where the institutions of accountability of the government to the people are not as uh, well-developed as they are in mature democracies. So mature democracies certainly have you know, national patriotism, but in their public debates about who are our enemies and what should we do with them, uh, there's uh, more judiciousness, more information, and uh, a tighter connection uh, at the ballot box in punishing politicians who make policy based on reckless nationalism that turns out to run high cost. In a mature democracy, you can hold those politicians to account and throw them out of office, criticize them. In one of these poorly institutionalized, uh, transitional, incomplete democracies, you can get away scot-free with nationalist mythmaking and mobilization, and that's what happens in many of these cases that we've been writing about.
0: Another question right there in the back on the aisle. If you could speak up just a little bit, please.
2: Let me just make a couple comments, and then I'm sure Jack has more to say about this. First is that uh, some of the cases that you mentioned are beyond the point where data exists, so we didn't code them, particularly the Afghan case. Um, But you're right. I mean, if the United States had gone in and toppled Saddam and then uh, left, I mean, and for that matter, what, what probably exists is something that we would consider an incomplete democratic transition right now. Um, and, and we think that that is a potential problem um, if, if not managed uh, effectively. Um, but palace coups wouldn't qualify. I mean, moving from one autocracy to another may create dangers, but not of the sort that we're analyzing uh, or interested in. So, it is this process of kind of opening Pandora's box part of the way toward a a shift, a fundamental shift in regime type, away from an autocratic regime to one of these mixed regimes. It's a democratic transition that somehow gets stalled in a way where uh, you don't have democratic accountability in place that helps regulate the sort of nasty nationalism that Jack was just describing. But you nonetheless have uh, the beginnings of kind of a quasi-democratic process where groups are competing their demands for mass participation and the institutions to manage that process and kind of ferret out the nationalism that can create these external problems just haven't been put in place yet. Just quickly to add on to that,
1: uh, our statistical uh, part of our research design shows that it's not just any regime change that increases the likelihood uh, of war that uh, on top of whatever effect that is there's a, an additional effect for incomplete democratization um, but uh, I guess for the Iraq type of problem I would say that the the significance of our findings is uh, the follows that uh, as follows that, If the decision to topple an authoritarian regime hinges on how optimistic you are about putting in a successful, stable regime in the wake of the toppling, don't be optimistic about democratization in a country that lacks many of the preconditions for it. Um, As to whether one should be optimistic or not about putting in a new stable autocracy to replace it uh, you know that's a separate question that we haven't studied and it certainly
3: you know bears stuck
0: and Tom did you, my neck is getting stiff from facing this way did you have a 30 second comment that
3: well that's I do it's actually back on something that that, that Jack said in, in, in response to mine which is that one thing I didn't have a chance to say which is that when you prescribe what you call a preferable sequence of transition, or the right way to do it, is you you emphasized two things strike me. One, you're essentially telling large numbers of people in countries around the world, put up with being repressed for another generation or so. And, And to make that prescription to say, without ever mentioning in your book, there's a very high price to pay for continued authoritarianism. People are going to be tortured. They're going to be murdered by secret police. They're going to suffer under political persecution and say, that's the right way to go is to put up with that for a while because that authoritarian may be like those nice Malaysians who plan over time to build the rule of law. The world is littered with the carcasses of authoritarian regimes that promised changes in the rule of law and didn't carry them out. Yes, you can come up with a list of one or two or three or four who did, you're coming up with exceptions. And so how can you calmly prescribe and say better to stick with a a sort of a moderate path of authoritarianism with such confidence and call that the right way? What I'm saying in places like Egypt is it's not clear how rule of law might come about in Egypt. It might come with greater accountability. It might come because Mubarak's son turns out to be a reformer. But by using the word right, you're speaking with a level of confidence that applies to every country in the world to which those of us who work day to day on democracy promotion don't have that confidence, to have a single recipe for every country in the world based on a few exceptional Asian states and the experience of 19th century Europe. Uh, Wayne Mary, right
6: there. Yes, Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. Question for Dr. Mansfield. In your historical review, did you examine or find any correlations based on the extent of the electoral franchise? Because obviously the term democracy covers a world of sense. And just it occurs to me that Wilhelmine, Germany, had a much broader electoral participation rate than did Edwardian in Britain. Weimar, Germany, had women's suffrage. Third Republic, France, did not. And yet it's the two German cases that led to war and catastrophe, and it was the much less Democratic, British, and French cases uh, that sought to sought to avoid war. So in, in looking at your historical cases, did you just look at democracy as an abstraction or did you look at how many people actually got to vote? I would also notice the, the time of the U.S. war with Mexico, uh, most, American, uh, most Americans could not vote.
2: Um, What we did was to work with the existing databases in the empirical literature from the international relations and comparative politics uh, research communities to distinguish these different types of regimes. Um, I'm not aware of data that on the extent of the franchise across all countries during the 19th and 20th centuries. We certainly weren't able to find any of that sort. Um, It's obviously a tricky issue because, you know, do you consider uh, the United States even in in 1850, for example, a democracy, (coughs) given the restrictions uh, that existed on the vote? But nonetheless, IR scholars and comparative politics scholars have worked with data sets to try based on the uh, constraints that are placed on elected officials by the populace um, to make cross-time and cross-country comparisons. And that's what we relied on in order to make these assessments. But the short answer to your question is no. We did not, uh, and we're not able to... um, uh, make comparisons of the extent of the suffrage per se um, across time and across countries, particularly in the 19th century.
0: Got Time for probably two more questions. There's one all the way in the back there and then one right here on the aisle.
5: I'm Matthew Hogan, uh, no affiliation for the question. Um, could you, the authors, comment on the situation of South Africa, which seemed to have had it was mentioned, but seems to have had a relatively benign transition both internally and externally. And a sneak in a second question. Is the theme of your book that the price of adulthood is adolescence? Uh,
1: the uh, One of my friends suggested that the title of the book is, should be uh, Adolescent Democracies, Gotta Love Them, Wars and All. South <laughs> Africa is a good example to illustrate our hypothesis, because the apartheid regime in South Africa had all the institutions that you need to run a democracy. Uh, It had uh, an effective, rational, legal uh, state, it had uh, professionalized journalism, it had political parties and an electoral system that uh, was well institutionalized and so you had all that stuff ready to go Uh, the only thing that you didn't have was you didn't have the majority of the population being allowed to vote but it was a usable state with a set of usable participatory institutions which then uh, were uh, a key factor, not the only factor, but a key factor making the transition to democracy relatively peaceful and relatively successful in South Africa. To put it another way, South Africa democratized in the same sequence as Great Britain did, and that's why the South African transition looked more like the British transition than it did to, say, the Burundian um, transition. Uh, While I have the floor, just let me uh, make uh, a quick reply to uh, Tom's point about the costs of waiting. Um, I take that point, but at the same time, there's a qualification to it. We argue that holding elections too soon runs the risk of mobilization of anti-democratic forces who then can entrench themselves and make the autocratic detour even longer than it would have been if you had only waited. Uh, One example that's often invoked along these lines is holding elections in Bosnia too soon after the Dayton Accord as a factor that helped entrench the ethnic nationalist political forces uh, there. How often this uh, unnecessary uh, entrenchment and detouring happens as a result of premature attempts to democratize is something that we did not really systematically study. We know it's a problem, uh, but we don't have any systematic findings on how widespread a problem it is.
0: The last question will come from the gentleman right there. Uh, Corey Flintoff from National Public Radio,
1: I wonder
6: how your thesis applies to examples like Haiti in the 1990s when there was a a strong uh, U.S.-supported and U.N.-supported attempt to establish rule of law and reform the police and reform the courts and and so forth that uh, looked promising for a few years but finally failed.
1: Well, Haiti was certainly a country where there was an attempt to democratize it, when uh, you know, none of the preconditions, including uh, the rule of law, were in place, and uh, it was a failure. It was uh, it was a failure that led to internal violence, uh, but just well because it's not, uh, you know, a multi-ethnic society with competing nationalist movements and because Haiti was in no position to, you know, play the nationalist card in a foreign wars, it didn't, you know, produce the kind of uh, problem that, you know, would put it in our database. Uh, but, uh, you know, it certainly is an example of the difficulty of democratization without the preconditions in place.
0: All right, with that, let me make one final point in that we got some kind of a very deep discount on the book. So if there are any copies available outside, you'd be well advised uh, to pick one up there as opposed to uh, elsewhere. Uh, so let me go ahead and thank both our commentators and our authors for a stimulating forum, and we'll have a luncheon upstairs in the Winter Garden. Thank you.